Kids Comics. 500 feet over the city. The cape swirling in the wind. My cowl. My true face. Back where it belongs. The batarang line snakes out across the chasm. And I am a creature of the night once more. this week. Hello, hello, lovely people. Hello, fantastic listeners. See, you do it better than I do. Hello, lovely people. Which one did you prefer? Hello, lovely people or hello, fantastic listeners? You keep your fantastic listeners for your fantastic cast. This week, it is the end, but the moment has been prepared for. After eight episodes talking about Night's Quest, six episodes talking about Nightfall. But the other way around. Yes, but the other way around. We didn't do it in that order. That would be silly, wouldn't it? We reach the end of the road, the final chapter of Night's End. And what a long, strange trek it's been. We've looked at the comics, the novel, the audio drama, and essentially examined the 90s contribution to comics in a nutshell. It was all here. A major change to a character's status quo, cover enhancements, ridiculous armoured costumes, frankly... Insane plot developments, padding, good art, mediocre art, crossovers, too many titles, and yet, through it all, the story always seemed to be going somewhere. There was a definite through line, an end point that was always in sight. It may have taken them a while to get there, but at least they did get there. In terms of how a crossover and a major storyline was handled, this was pretty textbook. It didn't take the world by storm, like the death of Superman, but it did tell a pretty damn good story with a point. Crossovers in the Bat books wouldn't be this good again until No Man's Land. This is Hey Kids Comics. I am Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. And we're your hosts through this, the final part of Night's End. Before we begin... As has become customary in recent times, we've got a couple of emails, but before we even do that, I have a special shout-out to the lovely Mr. Sean Engel, who I cannot now say enough nice things about. (sighs) Back when we did Spider-Man Month, or however long it lasted... I forgot. Didn't we do five weeks yeah, of that? just over a month. Yeah, just over a month. Um, It was pointed out, much to Michael's amusement... (laughs) That I had doodled on a few of my comic books. Black Spidey had boobs. Yeah. He had moves. Now, in most cases, this didn't really matter, did it? Because no. those the, most of the books that I had doodled on in my stupidity as a child... Were enjoyed. Were... They were enjoyed, yes, but they were also... They're not books that are expensive to replace. No. A couple of issues of Marvel Team-Up, I think it was, wasn't it? But I've never replaced them because they were mine. I bought them off the shelf. I may have doodled on them, but they were my doodles. Yeah. I do doodle. You do doodle too. But... In my exams. Uh, yes. Uh, when we were covering Amazing Spider-Man 252, which is a pretty landmark issue, yeah. it has to be said, the first appearance of the black-suited Spider-Man, it was noted, to much hilarity, by my lovely offspring... At least I get a lovely in there. You get a lovely in there. That I had drawn 
in this, if not priceless, pretty expensive comic. And tongue-in-cheek, I said, if somebody wants to send me a mint condition copy of Amazing Spider-Man 252, that'd be great. I honestly <laughs> did not expect somebody to take me up on this. However, Sean, who also goes by Joe Anthrax, sent me a brand new mint condition copy of Amazing Spider-Man 252 for ostensibly my birthday. Uh, he sent a lovely little letter in it and we had a bit of an email bit back and forth. Because when I opened this, you weren't here, were you? No. When I opened this. I opened this and I was literally speechless. Ask your mum. Did you cry? I didn't cry. It was more a case of, What? 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 To quote David Tennant. Which you never do enough. For a moment, I actually thought, I can't accept this. This is not a cheap comic. Yeah. It's 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 not up there with Amazing Fantasy 15. You're just going to send it in back. Well, and, but your mum actually pointed out, look, he must have wanted you to have it or he wouldn't have sent it. Yeah. That would be silly. So, okay, after I got over the initial shock that somebody had sent me, Amazing Spider-Man 252. We had a bit of an email back and forth. I'm not going to read that email on the show. Okay. I hope he's not offended by that, but I think that's a pretty personal email. And his email to me actually made me well up. Did it? Yeah. His email back to me is the, the reason. Yes, I freely admit that you get more sentimental as you get older. Yeah. So, uh, I cannot say enough nice things about him. I cannot say thank you enough times. Uh, I do wish, in many ways, that we'd videoed me opening it. Because I would have loved him to see it. Oh, I wish I'd been there. I do suspect that your mum was like, that reaction is probably what he wanted. Yeah. So, thank you so much. Sean hosts Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, specifically about the 90s era Green Lantern, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Oh, he will be Kyle Rayner when he gets there. I'm listening, I'm just up to him doing Emerald Dawn, or is it Emerald Twilight? I'm just up to the issue where he's about to start that. It's a very good lesson. Emerald Dawn's the beginning, so Is it? probably Twilight. So I'm up to that bit, and it's very good, and it's very fun. Uh, but I, I can't believe he sent me a copy of Mercy Spider-Man 252. Thank you very much. Do you want my old one? Okay. Do you want me to bequeath my old one to you? So I can cut it up and put it on my wall. I don't know if I'd go that far <laughs> and let you do that with Amazing Spider-Man 252, but it's up to you. I would bequeath that have, to have you. Have you opened it yet? I have opened it, yes, because I've put his um, his letter in. Have you had a look through it? Because I'm going to keep it. I've not looked through it yet. I was just going to say you looked through it and he's drawn clown faces on each and every one. He's put red noses on everyone. Yeah. Because I've kept the letter that he sent me as well. I've kept that in the bag as well. So, thank you very much, Sean. That is very much appreciated. Uh, before we begin... Uh, mum's going to have a problem living up to those uh, expectations. No, she's not. Anything your mum gets me is always uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, emails this week, before we get into the, the meat of the show, if you will. Uh, Luke Giaconetti emailed in with Spider-Man month number five of the finale. We need an exterminator. One that would drive away King Ghidorah. We need from you Monster Zero One and Monster Zero Two, Andrew Leyland and Michael Leyland. What was your Japanese accent? <coughs> So that hurt my throat. You can't say Tengu without turning into a Japanese person. You, you, you can... <coughs> well, I don't know. Should that be read in a Japanese accent? Well, I don't know. He's, me- he's mentioning <coughs> Godzilla, and since Luke continues, forgotten about the American Godzilla. That was Luke's salutation, by the way, that made my throat hurt. <coughs> he says the greeting makes more sense later as he has a Godzilla reference, which surprises me. Yeah, quite frankly, from Luke. 
just finished listening to the finale of Spider-Man Month. And after the extremely long email I sent last week, wasn't long enough. We could have almost got an entire episode out of that one email. Coupled with the indignation of missing week three, I'm just going to do some quick hitters here covering some of my thoughts on Andy's list of his top ten favourite Spider-Man stories. Keeping in theme, I've not read a single issue of the ones you chose. (laughs) Even now, after we've done the show, you've not read them. But some of them stood out to me for one reason or another, and I thought I would share some thoughts. Amazing Spider-Man 92. This story sounded very cool to me, if only for the presence of Iceman. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, baby. Andy, you speculated whether this was a plug for X-Men at this time, February 1971. But there had been no new X-Men stories for nearly a year, but the title had been restarted as reprints, so it may have been a crossover to drum up interest in the reprints. Maybe. Um, Iceman is only weakness is summer. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's quite likely. That yeah. They did it to drum up interest in the X-Reprints. See, the thing with this, Luke is that I think we need to explain... I've banged on about the British reprints many times before, because that's how we got this stuff. But we didn't get them concurrently. Like, we would get a Spider-Man story that was reasonably contemporary, like the early 80s, which was when I was primarily reading Marvel UK. But the backup strip was the Hulk, for example. They were printing the Roger Stern run of the Hulk, which was from the mid-70s. So we weren't getting concurrent stories. So when the Iceman strip appeared in Spider-Man UK comics, it's very possible we were still getting new X-Men stories. But certainly in the US, I would imagine there was some kind of cross-pollination going on. Amazing Spider-Man 166, Stegron! You have to love humanoid dinosaurs. Woohoo! You know it! Although, Michael, plastic dinosaur bones? I think you mean that the bones are cast yeah, in plaster, yeah. not plastic. Unless I heard you wrong, which is possible. No, you, you, heard, you heard me wrong, yeah. <laughs> you going with that? I said cast it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Amazing Spider-Man 238, just an absolute classic cover, hands down. Yeah, it's a brilliant cover, that one. The Hobgoblin ripping Spider-Man's costume to bits. Yeah, in some great. ways, yes, yes. You're, you're well aware of that issue, aren't you? Uh, in some ways, the Hobgoblin is a better-looking villain than Green Goblin due to the colour scheme. Also, the idea of May Parker's house as a boarding house as a concept. I remember because, wait for it, it comes up in the second Venom storyline in Amazing. Everything comes back to Venom with me. Yes. Uh, yes, well, that, that plot line went on for a while. Aunt May running the house as a boarding house. That went on for quite some time. Amazing Spider-Man 11, 12. I want to take this opportunity to talk about Dr. Octopus, who, for my money, is the classic Spider-Folk. Mine as well, judged as evinced by the amount of Dr. Octopus tales in my favourite. I was introduced to Doc Ock through, believe it or not, the Incredible Hulk cartoon series. I later would have the Secret Wars toys, his arms fell off, like, immediately as well, but no matter how I was introduced to him, I think he's a fantastic foil to Spider-Man. Much like the Vulture, he's an old man who fights a young hero, but more than the Vulture, Doc Ock was a scientific genius, much like Peter, was very smart. So to my mind, Doc Ock represents what Peter could become if he lets the more depressing and distressing aspects of his life grind him down and become bitter and frustrated. And visually, the green and yellow costume mixed with the silver robot arms always pops off the page to me. Needless to say, I was very happy to see Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2, especially being played by a pudgy middle-aged man in Alfred Molina. So three cheers for Dr. Octopus. Yeah, Alfred Molina was excellently cast in Spider-Man 2. Uh, whatever flaws the Spider-Man movies had, the casting was wasn't one of them. No, it's not. I like the Spider-Man movies. The second one's the best. I think the first one's the best. Really? I really like the first one, yeah. The first one has grown on me more. Apart from the ending, I have a few problems with the ending. My which where he, he, Mary Jane practically throws herself at him and he says no 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 I am taking the honourable hero's route like hell 
Anyway, carrying on with Luke's email, Andy, you say you didn't let Michael watch the American Godzilla hereafter G98 because it was too crap. Bravo, sir. <laughs> that movie had a whole score of problems and they have not improved with time. No, Godzilla was... All, the, the thing with the, the American remake of Godzilla, the one with Matthew Broderick in, was that Godzilla was minding his own business, if I'm remembering it correctly, because I've yeah, not he, seen he it. he had his little babies. Yeah, we've not seen it since then, have we? No. And we were the antagonists. And all the way through it, then, you were on the side of Godzilla. Yeah. And there's a part of him that's thinking, you shouldn't be on the side of the rampaging monster. The, the Americans just went through and killed all the babies. Yeah. yeah. So no wonder Godzilla was miffed. <laughs> have you seen it, then? Yeah. Alright, so you have seen it since. I went through a rebellious phase and I was like six and I got Nan and Grandad to buy me a video. And they bought you Godzilla? And, yeah. Alright, fair enough. As a side note, I still want you get get you lads on Earth Destruction Directive to talk about Kogo or Konga, both of which were British giant monster movies in the Japanese monster movie tradition. I'll have my people call you your people. Told you the greeting would make sense. I'm down with that. I used to watch... they, They used to be on Channel 4 late at night... Okay. The what Japanese the, monster movies. The Mothra. Yeah, Godzilla. Mothra. And I think there was one Gridiron, Grid or something like that. And they showed all the Godzilla ones. And Godzilla vs. Mothra. And I think they showed Godzilla vs. King Kong. I like Mecha Godzilla. Yeah, and all of that stuff. It was really good. Looking forward to night's end. Maybe I can go buy the trade paperback and forget about it like I did with the other two. <laughs> he bought Nightfall and oh, forgot right, that he yeah. bought it. Do you remember? He went back yeah. to it. He went back to it the shop to buy it and it had gone and it's because he'd bought it <laughs> oh, keep it up dudes Luke you're very welcome Luke thank you for emailing in and uh, the only other email we got this week was from Michael Bailey he's emailing us on a weekly basis though I would hope so I hope he has taken your your I didn't get an email from <laughs> Michael whiny voice to heart <laughs> Spider-Man month finale says Michael hey there y'all while I don't have a southern accent I like to pretend I do in print Another fantastic episode. I was already planning to write in, but Michael's comments at the beginning that I haven't been writing in as much pretty much assured it. There you go. Spider-Man Month has been a lot of fun. It's very obvious that the character means a great deal to Andrew, and it's been neat hearing Michael's opinion of the stories, as well as one of the best things about this show is the age difference of the hosts. This time out, Michael didn't seem to have much to say, and in one case it seemed like he didn't actually read the book in question, or at the very least write notes about it. But when Andrew mentioned something about Michael having his girlfriend over as the reason the notes didn't get written, I had to give the younger Leyland a complete pass. It's great to see that at 16, Michael is savvy enough to know when to put down the book and pay attention to something that is one of the few things better than reading comics. Bravo. Yeah, that's arguable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not commenting on what you just said, because I know your girlfriend listens to the show. (laughs) And I thoroughly expect you to have bruised abs. I enjoyed the top ten, and while I have not read the vast majority of issues you covered, I still liked hearing about them. I'm working my way through Spider-Man's comic book adventures, and Andrew's excitement made me excited to get to them. I could do a Spider-Man podcast, couldn't I? I know. I could talk about Spider-Man all week and twice on Sundays. I love Spider-Man. He is my all-time favourite fictional character. Okay. Do you have Spider-Man posters on you all and Spider-Man I did when I was a kid. I used to rip out the posters from the British reprints and put them on the wall. So I defaced my comics all the time, apparently. (laughs) Oddly enough, I just bought the 1981 Spider-Man annual that Andrew mentioned off of eBay at a very reasonable price as British reprints are almost non-existent here in the States and the annuals can be quite expensive. There is one seller on eBay that's asking $699.99 
for the various annuals he has. And that, to me, is a complete rip-off. Right? If you want to send me $700, I will find those annuals for you. Probably at much less than that, but I will keep the change. (laughs) (laughs) The annual... uh, No, seriously, if you're looking for a specific one, let me know, I'll keep my eye out for you. The annual was neat to look through, and I like that there were games and other bits of business to fill out the book. I can see a kid of the 70s and 80s really digging this, and Andrew seems to be proof of that. Because of this show, I've developed an interest in British reprints, but while the issues themselves seem rather reasonable, the shipping makes it a bit prohibitive to start collecting them. Still, I like seeing the covers and for other differences, and I thank you for giving me something else to want to collect. Did I write to thank you for a new addiction? Maybe that's the wrong phrase to use. I do agree that Amazing Spider-Man's issues 11 and 12 are fantastic reads. I love the Lee Ditko material that I have read. It's one of the few Silver Age books that I can dive right into and get lost in. Those initial issues had such a raw energy about them, and it's interesting to see how many of the villains introduced in those first 20 issues are still around today. 11 and 12 in particular have a nice end-of-the-season series, depending on if you're the US or the UK, feel to them. I could be a bit biased, as currently Doctor Octopus is my favourite Spider-Man villain, but while the dialogue is a bit wonky from our modern perspective, the drama and the humour still shined through. Good choices, Andrew. Thank you very much. The top ten thing was very difficult for me to do, wasn't it? I ummed, yes. I ummed and ahhed. And as I mentioned at the top of that show that we did, there were any number of issues that would have been included in that if I hadn't made the decision to, right, I'm only looking at Amazing Spider-Man. And that narrowed down the choice for me. But there's any number of ones that I could have included in that. I seriously considered including the Spider-Mobile. I seriously considered including Spider-Man Annual Number One, which was the Sinister Six. I seriously considered including the three-part uh, Spider-Man series where he, he apparently goes coward because Aunt May's ill. Uh, the first, it wasn't the first appearance of Mysterio, the second appearance of Mysterio with that fantastic Ditko cover of the house upside down and Spider-Man cracking up. There's so many. I suppose you that could have included and not best. They are all best. Get out of there. Spider-Mobile. Well, maybe not that one. Anyway. Two final notes. Thanks to the movie Weird Science, I got the tossing off joke. (laughs) Cracking one off is also a a popular euphemism, as is five-finger shuffle. I don't know if they've made it over to America, but I fully expect you to use them from now on. Also, I caught the Superman 2 reference Andy gave. Nice job, sir. Thank you very much. Anyway, that's it for this week. Looking forward to tonight's end. Y'all take care. Cheers, Mike. Um, Well, I do, with the references, I don't tend to hang lanterns on them. If people get them, they get them, and if they don't, they don't. But I'm glad that he got that one. And so, on tonight's end, we have one, two, three, four, five, six shiny comic books to cover for you tonight. First up, Detective Comics 677, which has a cover by Kelly Jones and John Beatty, and has a rather portly-looking Nightwig punching it out with Jean-Paul, whilst Batman classic kneels in the foreground covered in blood. Yeah, Nightwing looks fine until you get to his gut. Yeah, he does look like he's been piling on the pounds there, doesn't he? He does. I do like the Batman, though. Yeah, the Batman's alright. This is Night's End Part 9. The original Bat Signal is almost completely visible now. It's not Jones's best work, to be honest, being a little bland and lacking in background. But I suppose the colour purple makes a nice change. Steven Spielberg obviously thought so. Uh, Called Flesh and Steel. Oh, well, Mortal Kombat advert. And there's a Mortal Kombat advert in colour on the inside for a pet. Shut up. <laughs> Which way it makes all my Mortal Kombat references this series that bit more 
relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Chuck Dixon, with art by Graham Nolan and Scott Hanna. Adrian Roy coloured, John Costanza lettered, Darren Vincenzo, assistant edited, Scott Peterson was the editor, and Batman is credited as being created by Bob Kane. The story goes thusly. Nightwing hurls himself at Batman Zero in front of the burning Batmobile, shouting that you killed the Batman! John Paul says there is only one true Batman. Robin goes into shock at Bruce's death, but is jolted back to reality by a mother screaming about her baby. Robin rescues the mother and the baby and turns back to the battle. Batman Zero and Nightwing tumble off the bridge and Robin moves in to help, but is intercepted by the Batman. Turns out, he didn't die in the exploding Batmobile after all, instead leaping free just in time. The Batman leaves and Robin accompanies him, with Batman Classic assuring Robin that Nightwing can take care of himself. Underwater, Nightwing struggles for freedom and uh, and both combatants make it for a riverboat tourist tour and gambling den. Nightwing continues to more than hold his own, much to Jean-Paul's displeasure, and also continues to mock and belittle Jean-Paul. Nightwing has the upper hand, but is distracted by a female gambler who doesn't want to get out of the way, and Jean-Paul pounces, vowing that he will kill Nightwing, and then he'll kill Robin, and then there will be no pretenders. Fortunately for Nightwing, the police arrive and open fire on Batman Zero, who flees. He arrives back at the cave and realises that someone is above. He ascends the stairs and comes face to face with Bruce Wayne, the Batman. That's the Flash. It's all Donnie Elfman. <laughs> <coughs> you waited till I took a drink then, didn't you? I did. It's all John Williams. It's all John Williams. I had my iPod on shuffle today and I had three John Williams songs back to back. And they all sounded the same. No, they don't. They did. No, they don't. Uh, back in Chuck Dixon country, with an issue that literally kicks off running, we finally get the Nightwing as Bats confrontation we've yearned for throughout the whole shebang. And the scene where Robin is to rescue the baby but can't find out how to undo the baby seat is scurrily accurate. I hated baby seats. Did you? Yeah. Could you not just press the <coughs> belt? No, I could never undo them. I could never put you in them properly. You always end up scrunched up. And I, was, I never got any better throughout all the... Ch- I mean, you can understand me being a bit crap with you. You were the first one. Yeah. Babies don't come with instruction manuals. But I never got any better at it. <laughs> time went on. Is that why babies prefer mums? Mums actually know how yeah. to put them into baby seats, yeah. But I think babies can be comfortable anywhere as well. So it didn't matter that you're all huddled up in your baby seat just looking at me like what have you done dad uh, I love the colouring on page 5 where Robin leaps away from the exploding car it's very Frank Miller that isn't it mm. that it doesn't look like there's an outline around Robin it's very good and I love Kaboom we don't get onomatopoeia in comic books much anymore do we no. and that's really good I, I don't think bombs go Kaboom anyway they probably don't, but, yeah. you know. In a British accent as well. Kaboom! <laughs> no, kaboom! I really got to stop doing that. My, my throat's Jeez. really sore tonight. Love the smell of exploding car <clears throat> in the morning. Yeah. Oh, dear, I think I'm going to struggle tonight. Um, page eight. I can't decide if this is awesome or groan-inducing. <laughs> um, it's very much in the vein of the Old Republic serials, whereby we, the viewer don't see the outcome of the cliffhanger ending but it's normally a bit of a cheat the editors would show us footage we didn't see in the previous installment or even change the order of events and sometimes just flat out cheat I'm not saying this is a cheat because we've seen Batman get out of tougher situations than this before but there really didn't seem like 
any time at all between Bruce realising that the Batmobile was rigged and it blowing up. It was Batmac. Yeah. Are you referencing Magnum P.I. again? I am, yeah. Uh, I did like the line about how he realised the car was rigged because it's something he would have done, only he wouldn't have killed the person in it. Yeah. The explosion. How did you... Well, I simply used the bat explosion repellent in my utility belt to protect myself. <laughs> Do you think he has explosion repellent? Oh, yeah. That would be pretty cool. Shark repellent, too. Oh, well, well he definitely has shark repellent. He does. Yeah. Um, I adored the Nightwing Jean-Paul battle. Seeing Jean-Paul get his head handed to him is always pleasurable. And Nightwing very nearly beats him, which is pleasing indeed, and what I've been waiting for throughout this entire story. Nightwing is only beaten here because he lets his guard down due to a woman that he's trying to rescue. I thought this was fantastic. I've waited... God, how many issues have there been in this so far? Oh, there was wow. about 20 a night for wasn't there? And yeah. it, was about, it was about 30 nights quest. Yeah. Finally we get what I've wanted to see all along. Nightwing kicking the crap out of Asbats. Is Nightwing not more physically powerful than Batman at this moment? Yeah. Than Bruce? Yes. I would argue that Nightwing is actually in better shape at the moment than Bruce Wayne is. I would argue Nightwing is actually in better shape than Bruce most of the time. Because yeah. Nightwing's 10 years, 15 years younger than Bruce and Wayne. Dick grew up doing what Bruce only started. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce only started training himself from age 8 or 9 onwards, didn't he? Mm. If you think that Dick Grayson will have been training in the circus from, yeah, from being very small, one would imagine that the stuff Bruce has had to train for comes very naturally to Dick. Yeah. Which is probably why I really do like Nightwing mm. a lot more. I mean, there are people that complain that the sidekicks take away from the main hero because you, you, you've got this thing that you're going to grow up to be Batman and you've got the chance that you could grow up to be Batman if you train hard enough. Yeah. But you can't grow up to be Nightwing because Nightwing's already better than you at age five. But I like, I don't mind that. I always like Dick. Dick Grayson's probably one of my favourite DC comic characters when he's handled well. I really do like him. We get into the moving casino. Um, they have a long and storied history in Bat Law. Yeah. Um, Batman chased Joe Chill to one when he learned that he was the murderer who gunned down his parents. Which we covered. We did. No, we didn't. That one never heard. Did it not? No. We, th- we thought it came out not very well, so we never released it. We t- I changed it to Batman Special Number 1, the play on the other side. I'm sure we did another one. Maybe we should go back and do that one, because it is one of my favourite Batman stories. We should do that, and the episode of Brave and the Bull that adapted it. Wow. Hey Kids Comics, the lost episodes. Yeah, I don't think we have it anymore, so we can't release it. Yeah. I think it got deleted. Well, I, I quite laughed at the gambler, that won't move. But what's really sad is that there's actually people who are like that. Yeah, there are, well, there are people who are addicted to scratch cards and, and stuff like that, yeah. yeah. It's a genuine thing. That's what Gamblers Anonymous helps you with when you have a problem like that. Yeah, Dick almost gives away Batman's identity on page 20. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. In, his, um, in his delirium, he almost gives away his name in front of the cop. But you could argue he's, he's chunnering wildly, though. So he just goes, B-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-
Does he drop that after Prodigal? after Prodigal? Is it yeah. Trichel where he takes off the yellow over? Every cover for the four issues is exactly the same. Yeah, pretty much. Die cut thing. Yeah. Um, but I love that panel. I think that's absolutely fun. It's very Paul Galacy as well. I think that one. This was a good issue, this. I enjoyed this one immensely. Glad to have Chuck Dixon back in the writing reins. Um, I finally got the Nightwing versus Asbats match I wanted to see, and both of them held up their end pretty well, especially Nightwing, who I thought did pretty well in that. What did you think of that one, Michael? I enjoyed it. These last four were all pretty good, weren't they? Yeah. Maybe the ending's a bit, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is when it starts getting good. What, just as it finishes? It is, yeah. <laughs> all the mask of Tengu stuff's boring, and then it ramps up. Yeah, from where Bruce puts the suit back on. Yeah. It really does start cranking up a notch, doesn't it? Chapter 10, which was in fact the last chapter of Night's End, appeared in Legends of the Dark 1963, which appeared perfectly formed and ready to be loved on June 28th, 1994. The covers by Barry Kitson and Scott Hanna depicts the final confrontation between Batman Classic and Batman Zero. Bruce's costume is all ripped up, but he still looks buff and determined as he kicks Batman Zero into some electrical equipment that erupts in a flurry of sparks everywhere. It's very good, and the colouring works very well with the artwork. That may be my favourite cover of all of Night's End. Mainly because I just like Asbats getting his face handed to him. Oh, yeah. What do you think of that one? I liked it. It's good, isn't it? Batman's a bit porky. Uh, well... I suppose you could argue he's not bat in top shape yet. Can you not be on a uh, Night's End cover unless you look porky? <laughs> Possibly not. Wouldn't have thought so. Uh, entitled Climax, the issue was written by Denny O'Neill with the art by the cover team uh, of Barry Kitson and Scott Hanna. Hey, look, what's that? What? Is, is that a grey cover? There is a, an grey interior yeah. black and white advert. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, the rest of the team were Willie Schubert lettered, Digital Chameleon coloured, assistant editor was Chuck Kim, associate editor was Jim Spivey, and editor was Archie Goodwin. Why on earth Legends of the Dark Knight needs three editors? I really don't know. And yet not one of them caught that goof with the Batmobile from last week. What, that it exploded? No, that it was parked on the bridge conveniently, when they'd not been anywhere near the bridge. The final chapter of Night's End goes like this. As Bats tells Bruce Wayne to get out, he's not the Batman. The Batman is now Jean-Paul Valley. Bruce says he isn't here to fight. Jean-Paul says that he's been given everything he ever had and that he was too weak to be Batman. He should return to his parties and his women and take his father with him. To emphasise the point, he removes the portrait of Thomas Wayne from the wall and breaks it in twain. Bruce stands motionless. He didn't want to believe the stories that Jean-Paul had become as bad as the people he purports to stop, but as his responsibility, it falls to him to work together to bring it to an end. He orders Jean-Paul to take off the suit. Jean-Paul responds with a hail of bat shurikens. The Batman avoids them deftly, and Jean-Paul flees to the cave. Realising that the cave will be booby-trapped like the car, the Batman enters the cave via another entrance. He finds Jean-Paul motionless and talking to himself under the control of the system. Batman again asks him to take off the suit. Jean-Paul lashes out, and it's on. Batman realises that Jean-Paul has bulk and strength on his side, but not the skill or the agility. He lures him back through the maze of tunnels he used to enter the cave, the narrow passageways forcing Jean-Paul to shed his armour, making him more physically matched. 
As the cave darkens, the Batman makes a show of placing his night vision lenses into place, and Jean-Paul does the same. Bruce continues to lure Jean-Paul through the increasingly narrow caves before ripping off the baffle, revealing the bright sunshine above. Blinded, Jean-Paul rips off his mask to see a Batman bathed in light, and the realisation hits him that Bruce is, has been, and always will be, the Batman. Bruce helps him out and lets him go, saying that Jean-Paul doesn't know who he is yet, but in time, he may find out. Jean-Paul leaves and is told to not look back, and Bruce Wayne bathes in the light. That's a bit anticlimactic synopsis, that, isn't it? It is. All things considered. That's anticlimactic issue. Did you think? Yeah. Okay. Um, focusing on the positive to start off with, the splash page is really good. Ostensibly, it's just a panel of Jean-Paul pointing his implausibly spiky gloves of death, like a perverted Your Country Needs You poster. But I, for one, am happy to have Kitson back for this last go-around. No offence to the other art teams. I like Graham Nolan's look quite a lot, but Kitson's work is fluid and photo-esque without being overly photo-referenced. In fact, the art in this entire issue is really good. Page four, where Jean-Paul breaks the picture of Thomas Wayne and then his face emerges through what was Thomas's face, is wonderfully symbolic of the storyline as a whole. It works on the level that it's supposed to, that this is Jean-Paul goading Batman into a fight that Bruce wants to avoid, because on some level he feels sorry for Jean-Paul, but on another level of the son replacing the father, as all life must, and Jean-Paul now representing a bastardised version of what Bruce Wayne has become in honour of his father. It's a potent scene, well rendered by Kitts and subtly handled by Denny O'Neill. It's a lot more dramatic in the novel. Is it? Yes, but I'm going to mention the novel and the audio adaptation later. Then I, I like how it's obvious that Jean Paul is really annoyed, um, Bruce, but he's keeping his cool to ensure that an actual fight is only a last resort or to hide his feelings so he doesn't give Jean Paul the satisfaction. Yeah, I like that. Because I thought that was very subtle, the way they did that. It does, it addresses one of the criticisms we had last week, doesn't it? That Bruce is better than just a mindless slugfest. Here he's doing everything he can to avoid a fight. Whereas last week he was just hauling mm. off and punching somebody who's wearing armour. Which doesn't strike me as terribly bright. Not very. No, not especially. Page 9 has a lovely little continuity reference to Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns. With Bruce entering the cave via the same route he found back then, there's a lovely shot of Batman on the bottom, the last panel of that page as well, of him jumping through the hole that as a kid he fell through. Mm. So the he's a lot more graceful now than he was. Um, I'm a bit confused, however, by that panel. Why? He's quite clearly jumping down the, a number of feet. Yeah. Right? At the bottom of page 9. Mm-hmm. On page 10... He can stand on the floor and replace the, the wooden panels that his dad put in to stop him from falling down ever again. Maybe he's done a rock. It's a very big rock. Yeah. I I'll can't be- wait to tell all my friends. Maybe the other panel was meant to be symbolic. Yeah, because it is a damn good panel. Yeah. So I'll get, if you're going to go symbolism, go good symbolism. Page 12. The realisation here that Batman may not be the real person and Bruce Wayne is, is a revelatory moment in bat law. For a long time now, probably since Crisis on Infinite Earth, there's a very definite idea that Bruce Wayne was the mask and Batman the real person. And this was, in many ways, one of the issues Nightfall tried to address. We've seen what a Batman without Bruce Wayne under the mask is like, and it's every bit of fallacy as the Bruce Wayne playboy identity. Bruce needs Batman, yes, but Batman needs Bruce Wayne. Well, or someone who understands who Batman is. I mean, Dick has proven himself 
to be worthy of Batman to himself, allies, and the readers. Both times he's he's had the cowl, mm. and he's succeeded Bruce with certain elements, such as being more fun and light-hearted, a Batman whilst treating the job as serious as Bruce did. Yes, Dick Grayson was a very good Batman. And in two issues we saw Damon as Batman he treated the job very seriously, was almost as aggressive as Gene Paul, but was as tactical as Bruce and took the same approach Bruce did. What issues was Damien Batman? 666 and 700. Oh, it's the future ones, so one of the ones that Neil Gaiman wrote. No, Morrison didn't. I thought Neil Gaiman wrote 600. Neil Gaiman wrote... Whatever happened to the Cape Crusader, didn't he? Yes, yes you're right, sorry. Which was the funeral. Right, so Damien Wayne has become Batman as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, fair enough. Well, I, I think the point is that... The point of this story was that a brutal Batman isn't Batman. Hmm. Was the point they were striving for in this? You got to remember the whole reason this came about was people saying, "Well, Batman kill." They were getting tons of letters saying, "Why doesn't Batman kill?" So they gave us a Batman that killed people. You wanted Wolverine or Punisher? Yeah, um, which is what they gave us yeah. as bats, if nothing, if not the bastard child of Wolverine and the Punisher, with a bit of spawn thrown in for good measure. No, that's a sex tape I don't want to see. <laughs> no, no, we really don't. Uh, page thirteen through eighteen. Here we see Bruce Wayne's compassion, which Jean-Paul never had when he was the Batman. He doesn't want to defeat Jean-Paul, he wants to save him. He acknowledges that Jean-Paul is mentally damaged by the system and he needs help, not a beating. I like seeing Batman use his brain to trap Jean-Paul. I also like that his plan is cunning, but leaves the reader, like Batman himself, knowing what he's up to, even if Jean-Paul can't see it. Because it's quite obvious what he's doing to him. Um, I like how not only has Jean Paul kept the costume on for the almost the entirety of his role as Batman, but how he also keeps the helmet on here when he takes the rest of his armour off because he believes that Jean Paul is Batman's mask and believes that he really is Batman. Yeah, well, he's come, he's become submerged in the identity, hasn't he? Mm. So the fact that he takes everything off except the mask is very telling of the fact that he believes he's Batman. And Jean-Paul doesn't even exist. Which, again, is a nice subtle commentary on the whole Bruce Wayne's the act, the Batman's the real person thing. Yeah. Which I never really bought into, to be honest with you. Fair enough. I always like Bruce Wayne having a bit of a life away from Batman. But, you know, that's just not the way that they've gone over the past 20 years or so. Page 19 through 25 are quite a low-key wrap-up to the whole story. Although there are still two aftermath issues to come and an issue of Showcase. Both Bruce and Jean-Paul are damaged in some way. But Bruce has proved again his sanity in the face of what happened. Jean-Paul let power corrupt, whilst Bruce never did. I'm still not sure that letting a murderer go free is an entirely sensible move, but I presume that this led to Azrael's own series, which I've never read. I found it interesting that Chandra doesn't even rate a mention mm-hmm. in Night's End at all, does she? Well, <clears throat> I think she's mentioned in this issue. What? When um, Jean Paul's all, ah, I was Batman, and where were you? I had to go and rescue Jack Drake and Chandra Kill and Sullivan. Ah, that's what you say. It's even this issue. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Dr. Kinsolving does get a mention on page three. In passing. Hmm. Alright, fair enough. There's a lovely advert for Batman 10 Nights of the Beast. What colour is in, it? In black and white. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Okay, fair yeah. This ain't going away anytime soon. <laughs> uh, I can't really decide if I like the ending or not. Can you not? Uh, on one hand, I like how Bruce is letting Jean Paul go because he feels responsible and guilty for what he's done as Batman. But on the other, side, on the other hand, I feel like there could have been a more climatic ending to it after a year and a half's worth of a lot of us all wanting to slap Jean Paul Silly. Yeah. 
Well, Nightwing did that for us in the last issue, really. Nightwing gave him the beating we wanted him to Wasn't have. Wasn't enough. Nightwing still went down. Yes, he did, but Nightwing went down for different reasons. So I can I can buy into that. Uh, in terms of advertisements in these lovely, lovely issues, Detective Comics was pretty much the same old, same old. Legends of the Dark Knight, as we mentioned, has a gorgeous piece of Mike Zeck art plugging the uh, Ten Knights of the Beast trade paperback, which, as Michael has pointed out, is on the inside back cover and is in black and white. Plus, Nightfall has been turned into, as we've mentioned, an audio drama, a novel by Denny O'Neill, but also a child novel by Alan Grant. <laughs> I don't know how you can turn the story of somebody getting his back broken into a child novel. How but did, uh, Bane hurt Batman and he could not be Batman. And then he threw him off a building. Yes, there you go. And uh, then he beat him silly. <laughs> don't know about and that. And then he probably touched up Catwoman when we weren't looking. He probably did try to <laughs> he do He probably that. did. Uh, Neil Gaiman's wrote an Alice Cooper comic. I think we've mentioned that before. Aquaman by Peter David. Fights zombies. Fights, uh, well, skeletons, anyway. Donna Troy joins the Dark Stars, which I've still never read. Uh, and that's pretty much it for adverts. This is quite a poor show. And then Jean Paul hurt a nasty man. Called Abattoir. <laughs> let him let him pass away. <laughs> um, I think we need to play a, a promo for, for Sean Engel's show. To yeah. be honest, I think it's the least I can do. So we'll be right back after these messages. And Guy Gardner is a douche, uh, especially Guy Gardner, who was being a bit of a douchebag, but uh, he wasn't really listening. That's Guy's like that. thing. Yeah, but that that's his other superpower. <laughs> Speaking of Guy Gardner, page 19, I resent the brain damage comment. He was just a character I found extremely grating. Wow, the internet seems to be filled with people who really can't stand the character of Guy Gardner. I mean, to some extent they have a point. I mean, they'd read the character like I have, his adventures with the cores, his solo comic run, whatever. Maybe they'd have a little more appreciation for him. I mean, there needs to be more guy love on the internet. Um, maybe not that kind of guy love. Regardless, there still has to be a way that a middle-aged man like myself, with a love of comic books, should be able to present a defense for an underrated character. If he built it, they will come. What was that? If he built it, they will come. Okay, strange disembodied voice, that's a great idea, but I really don't see how building a baseball field in a cornfield will help with matters. I mean, I think there aren't any cornfields near here, especially ones that are the owner let me build a baseball field in. Plus, Guy was more of a football player and... No, no, no. <sighs> Look, no speaks metaphorically. What I meant by Bill is... Oh, maybe make a podcast about it? Well, that's an even better idea, and it's a lot easier, given my farming and athletic abilities. I could recount all the appearances in Guy in comics, I could focus on his solo run, I could give detailed plans of his bar, and... Hold on, hold on, hold on, champ, champ. You really want people to actually listen to the podcast, don't you? Well, yeah. So why not start with the 1990s Green Lantern and continue on to the Reaper? Well, that's an even better idea. I could cover the Guy Gardner solo series a long way, and also put up for a defense my second favorite GL, Kyle Rayner. Plus, really, these are the two Earth-based Green Lanterns. For whatever reason, they're really overlooked in the mass media. Plus, I've got a nearly complete runs on both series. Wow! Thanks, strange disembodied voice. No problem. Now, now, now. let's go kill President Nixon. Um... 
you do know that Nixon has been dead for well over a decade. Well, how about some brownies? Mmm, that sounds great. I love some good brownies, especially the one with the chocolate frosting on top. Or if you ever had blondies, those are even better. I had one of those at church. Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, is a weekly internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics, starting with Green Lantern number 1 in 1990 and ending with Green Lantern number 181 in 2004. During the run, I will be placing a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite and the most underappreciated members of the Green Lantern Corps. Along the way, I'll be covering the Guy Gardner comic run, some Green Lantern annuals, and whatever else takes my interest at the time. Come and listen along with me, Sean Ingold, as I make the case for the Green Lanterns who deserve a better reputation at justoneoftheguys.lipson.com. And we're back. But, this being comics, this wasn't the end of the story. Oh, no. Three Night's End Aftermath issues were published after the end of Night's End Part 10. Um, We're going to cover them just for the sake of completeness, although, to be fair, only the issue of Robin is truly indispensable, isn't it? Mm. I would imagine when this does get trade paperbacked uh, as Nightfall Part 3, which must be coming out anytime soon because the first two volumes are out now, um, I wouldn't be bothered if they didn't include the Catwoman and the after and the showcase issue. But I think if they didn't include this, that would be um that would be tantamount to uh lopping off the last chapter of a storyline. This picks up exactly where it left off. Uh it came out july fifth, nineteen ninety four. It was by Chuck Dixon, Tom Grummet and Ray Kaising Kreising. Adrian Roy coloured it, Albert de Guzman lettered, Jordan B. Gorfinkel was assistant editor and Denny Neal was the editor. Uh, it's got an excellent cover of Robin punching the cack out of some goons and Batman leaping into the fray from an overhead skylight. Do you disagree? No, I think it's good. It is, it's a great cover, that, isn't it? Really looks like some power behind that punch. It does. Looks like he's breaking that bloke's jaw. Maybe, maybe Gene Paul's riled him up so much. Yeah, probably. The story is called The Triumph. Robin descends into the Batcave, unsure of what he will find. Jean Paul or Bruce. It's Bruce. He doesn't seem too pleased to have reclaimed the mantle of the bat and announces he's got some thinking to do. Robin switches back to Tim Drake and tries to get some sleep, having been up for over 48 hours. He's woken early, though, as today is the day his dad is picking up a new ride. Afterwards, they go home, but Ariana calls and Jack insists Tim take her out. Tim does so, but when Ariana tries to have a heartfelt conversation, Tim falls asleep. Ariana is less than impressed. Tim goes home again to sleep, but the bat signal shines. Robin heads for Wayne Manor, but Batman is left without him. Taking Redbird, the Robin-mobile, he monitors police scanners and learns there is a hostage situation at the Museum of Antiquities. Robin sneaks in, but encounters a crook named Slick. Robin defeats him and learns where the bad guys are located, and that they planned a simple robbery and bumped into a bunch of students working on the artifacts. Robin, using the radio, manages to get them to reveal the locations of the other teams. Batman is monitoring the frequencies and rounds up the men in the other locations. Tim dozes off, however, but wakes in time to see Batman round up the rest of the thieves. However, he misses one, leaving himself wide open, and Robin has to perform some during do to save the Batman's life. You left yourself wide open, says Robin. No, I didn't, smiles Batman. You were there. The duo leave Gordon to mop up the crims. As he always does. As he always does, Because yes. Batman can't wash a path for himself. He can't. No, well, it's not his job, is it? He's a role model to all students. Yes, he is. 
big pile of plates in it's the kitchen because Alfred's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, the first three pages of this I, I really do like a great deal. Bruce is back, but the ramifications of that are interesting and need exploring. Bruce was content. He was prepared to give up being Batman and live the rest of his life as Bruce Wayne. In many ways, this is both a blessing and a curse with these big crossover events. All three of the biggies, the clone saga over in the Spider-Man books, the death of Superman and Nightfall, could all have worked as the last chapter of these characters' stories. In all three cases, the story ended in such a way that the characters were all at peace with themselves and their lot in life. Superman was back, better than ever, and fully committed to his life and mission. Peter Parker and MJ were retired and waiting the birth of their child. And here we see a Bruce Wayne fully contemplating a successor and giving it all up. Now... This is serialised fiction, so I doubt that this is what the creators had in mind. Uh, and certainly with Spider-Man, his replacement was already being groomed. But I did find it interesting that they all could work as the end of that particular character's story. If this had been the last Batman story, and he yeah. turns over the mantle to Nightwing at the end of it, and it's the last Batman story for Bruce Wayne, that would have worked, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, same with the Clone Saga. The Titans would have been a bit different. Well, the Teen Titans would have got a new leader, and because Robin's not even Nightwing's not even a part of the Teen Titans anymore, is he? Which no. is sacrilege, if you're me. It is. But Robin it is. isn't part of the Teen Titans. It's Red Robin. Is it? Has Dick Grayson never? It's Tim Drake. See, in the zero issues that are coming up, not the ones after yeah. this. <laughs> DC Comics are doing a new zero month, which makes people like me feel pretty damned old because we were there <laughs> for the first zero month. But in the new zero month where they're all telling the origins, yeah. is it going to be established that Dick Grayson was at some point in Teen Titans? Or do we not know that yet? I don't know. We know he's been Batman. Yeah, well, see, they're very nebulous with the Batman continuity, aren't they? That's yeah. not changed much, apparently. Although there were never any crises. In five years. Yeah. But even... But <laughs> see there's a question about Batman Incorporated as well yeah. what parts of it are we meant to ignore and what parts actually happened ask Dan Dio. because for Batman Incorporated to have actually happened we needed Final Crisis yeah but there have never been a crisis in the DC Universe we also needed Identity Infinite Crisis for Bruce Wayne to go in his Thogal stuff which caused R.I.P. to happen brain which hurting. happened with that yeah, yeah. Uh, page 4 like Martin McFly Tim sleeps in his clothes um, page five, the the car may be wheelchair friendly, but Tim's going to need a few books for a booster seat just to see above the wheel. <laughs> Maybe he's going to be like short round yeah. in Temple of Doom. He's going to have blocks on his feet and sit on a box. <laughs> um, on page seven, I love Tim falling asleep and Ariana's anger at him. I especially like that we don't see her leave, we just hear the door slam mm. and Tim waking up. Like, oh, oh, oh. It's very funny. Tim going around on a passive patrol in his wagon. Yeah, I love the shot of the bat signal on page eight in the last panel. I always love the bat signal. Do you know they almost didn't have the bat signal in the animated cartoon in the 90s? Because they were trying to strip away everything. They'd have the cave and the Batmobile, and that was pretty much it. And then it was just pointed out that the bat signal is just too cool to not have. Even in your ultra serious. Batman interpretations like the Tim Burton movie and the Chris Nolan ones they still have to have the bat signal because hmm. the what bat signal awesome. the bat phone the, the red telephone have you seen that have you seen that internet picture that's been going around that's a shot from I think it's the Dark Knight of Bruce Wayne of Batman uh, Christian Bale stood looking at the bat signal and the the bat has been replaced by Superman's S and the caption underneath is just Bruce going damn you Clark 
<laughs> so funny. That was really funny. I've seen the one where it's Joker going, I slept with your mum. And Batman's going, but she's dead. And then Joker going, I know. And then Batman going, <gasps> that's wrong. <laughs> I've not seen that one and now I don't want to. <laughs> Uh, page nine. I have another car-related inquiry. Do you? Yes. Why is Redbird in the back cave? Uh, Tim was keeping it in an abandoned shed at his own property. He was, yeah. What's he doing in the back cave? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> he didn't drive over there because he doesn't come in through the cave at the beginning of this issue. He comes in through Wayne Manor. All the bat vehicles have this gadget in them, which is <laughs> a homing device. Bat homing signal. In, in a utility belt, and when you press it, the cars go to the location that's why it was on the bridge that's why the red oh right okay that, that can totally buy into that yeah you've no prized your way out of it well done I'm very impressed uh, page 10 I thought it a bit odd that Gordon even summoned Batman yeah because part of this whole night quest storyline was Gordon was on the out with him and as far as we've seen in this story Gordon hasn't met Bruce to confirm or deny Bullock's story it's that there were two Batmans at the end of this issue yeah as far as Gordon's aware it's still Jean-Paul. It's still Jean-Paul. I mean, I'm, I'm always a bit what's it about the whole thing that Jean-Paul, that Jean-Paul, that Commissioner Gordon couldn't tell the difference anyway. Yeah. That always struck me as a bit wrong. But, yeah, I was a bit, I was a bit intrigued as to why Gordon was calling him. Page 11 has an excellent sequence of panels of Robin sneaking past the police snipers and the searchlights and, and then lowering himself into the museum. It reminds me of the scene in Raised the Lost Art where Indiana Jones finds the Well of Souls. Especially with all the Egyptian artefacts mm. at the bottom. And then 12 through 14, as per usual with Mr. Dixon, uh, a neat little action beat where Robin takes out the bad guys with stealth and smarts and then learns where the rest of the thieves are by relying on their stupidity. Mm. Which I thought was quite, quite good. Page 17, though, is frankly the schnizzle. The panel of Batman attacking Leon at the main entrance is fantastically done he's just leaping out of the shadows um, from behind him Leon can't see him he's pointing his AK-47 in a completely different direction the camera is low and we see Batman swoop down on the unsuspecting thug I love the bottom two panels even more where we don't even have to see Batman we just see the scallops on his cape and you know what's coming next you don't even have to see it to know what's going on it's brilliant Tim's really useless in this issue, though. He keeps falling asleep, and he's even damaged two museum <laughs> attractions. Well, I'll cut him some slack for the falling asleep thing, but damaging the two attractions is unforgivable, isn't it? It is. That's just shocking. It's collateral damage, though. It is collateral damages. Uh, and just when you thought it couldn't get any better, pages 18 through 21, the last couple of pages of the story, are even better. Without a single word, Batman removes all the remaining players from the game, leaving the last for Robin. The little exchange at the back that I reenacted in the synopsis is really good. Lovely little bonding moment. And the shot of them swinging away on the last page is really cool. We won't mention the snafu about the cars again, seeing as both of them came in their respective vehicles but now they seem to be just swinging away without bothering to pick up the cars but if Michael's no prize explanation is legitimate then (laughs) it matter does it they can just summon the car from somewhere else later on maybe they left them round the corner to preserve the element of surprise yeah that's possible isn't it Uh, it's still quite a downbeat and melancholic ending 
with God and wondering what the future holds. Because essentially at this point, so are we. This isn't really an ending. It's much as it's a prelude to upcoming events. Bruce still needs to find out how his life is and how it's going to work now. How did Tim and Dick fit into it? Was Alfred gone? Can he rebuild his relationship with Commissioner Gordon? All of these things need to be addressed. And because of the, the beauty of serialised fiction, they can be in upcoming months. I don't know why this is lumped in with the aftermath stories as I really do think this should be Night's End Part 11. I don't think the story works without this issue. Or an epilogue. Yeah, or, or Night's End epilogue. Yeah, that would work better. Mm. But I, if this isn't in the trade paperback collection of this storyline, I will sternly be very... Worded letters to a DC. sternly worded letter to DC Comics will be going. There's a couple of nifty house ads this week. Uh, for some reason, the inside front and back cover adds a monochrome. Going back to our argument two weeks ago. Oh, well. Yeah. Dark Joke of the Wild has an advert, which I've never read. I don't know if it's any good or not. Zero Hour gets an advert. There's a great shot of Wonder Woman by Mike Diodato. Flash by Wade and Waringo. Another end of an era for the Legion. How many ends of an era have they had? Um, a Legion. Uh, Ads again for the novel, junior novel and audio adaptation of Nightfall. The next Aftermath issue came out on July 5th, 1994 and was in Catwoman number 13. The cover has Catwoman fighting frogmen underwater. Because it's on my iPad, Michael is busy faffing, zooming in on the fish. At least he's not zooming in on Catwoman's rather pendulous breast. Lara Croft boobs. Yes, she has got Lara. Out like a she has got Lara Croft boobs in this one. And Jim, I like boobs balance. Thank you, Michael Bailey. Uh, the cover has Catwoman fighting frogmen underwater. She's ripping the breather from the mouth of one and about to carve his face up with her kitty claws whilst another fires a harpoon at her. We're not saying she's got a fat ass, but. Despite wearing flippers and an oxygen canister, Catwoman has no obvious breathing apparatus, although a frankly huge breast probably acts as a flotation device. Uh, it's actually quite a good cover. Very Thunderball. Uh, entitled Catfish, the issue was written by Joe Duffy, with art by Jim Ballant, and inks by Bob Smith. I do like how the catfish title is shit like a fish. Mm. I thought that was quite a nice artistic touch. Picking up where Shadow of the Bat 30 left off, Catwoman is still on Gotham Bridge alongside a damaged Erwolf bemoaning her last caper and how it all went wrong. Catwoman only wanted Penn Selkirk and his cybernetic neural enabler to aid a friend of hers in walking again, but Selkirk threw it in the water just to stop her from having it. The GCPD arrive and Catwoman leaps off the bridge and into the river. Surfacing, she ropes some buddies into helping her search the riverbed for the enabler. They find the enabler, but Selkirk's men find them. Underwater, McFighty ensues, but Selkirk's men gain the upper hand and capture the cat and her buddies. Catwoman has been portrayed by the maker of the enabler who has sold out to Selkirk, but being Catwoman, she has a backup plan, and has replaced Selkirk's driver with her own operative, and she gets the enabler just in time to enable her friend to walk again. The end. This wasn't a bad issue, although it wasn't explained how Selkirk got away from the Gotham City PD. Mm. I did like that it happened simultaneously with Legends of the Dark Knight 63, and that all of the last three issues of Night's End took place over the same night. Balance art's actually quite nice, but the story's pedestrian, for want of a better word, isn't it? And has very little to do with Night's End. Yes, we find out what the MacGuffin Catwoman was after was for, and why she wanted it, and we get some closure with Selkirk. But you, you could skip this issue and not really miss anything. Uh, in reading the issues for this storyline, I've been interested in checking out more issues of Robin. But the Catwoman book hasn't really done anything for me. Whilst Catwoman's a really strong character, more than capable of holding her own title, Joe Duffy hasn't really grabbed me enough to make me want to check this series out. I may scope out the Ed Brubacker issues some point down the line. 
But uh, yeah, the ones he did with Darwin Cook, because I've not read them. Other than that, I don't really have a lot to say about this. It was enjoyable. It was ar- It mean, wasn't I, awful. Was I enjoyed it? it more than the next issue. Did you? Which is saying something. Okay, fair enough. The final Aftermath issue, of which Michael just spoke, is Showcase 94, issue 10, which came out on August 2nd, 1994. The cover to this one's really quite evocative. Jean-Paul's mask is trashed on the cover with sparks emanating from it. It lies on a bat signal of the Azrael type that has now been completely replaced on the covers by the traditional bat symbol. And for some reason, I thought this was really simple but thoroughly effective cover uh, by Joe Quisada and Carl Kettle. Holy crap, it's Quisada. It's Quisada, yeah. And it actually looks like a head. Joey the Q. Uh, the story is called Aftermath, appropriately enough, and is by Alan Grant with art by Mac Vosberg and Ron McCain. Very briefly, Jean-Paul stumbles through Gotham alone and directionless. He happens upon some homeless people who teach him that people are scum and it's a winner's world and nobody cares about you when you're bottom of the pile. Jean-Paul realises that at the bottom he's a person and his name is Anakin. Sorry, his name is Jean-Paul and he's a person. He can work from that. I'm not being facetious, that's pretty much it, yep. isn't it? It's... Oh, and he throws a beer and some people have a Gordon. Yeah, it's another incidental issue that adds nothing to the overall story arc. I presume this is just setting up Azrael's own series, but if that's the case, why didn't Denny O'Neill write it? Denny O'Neill wrote the Azrael series. Yeah. It struck me as a bit odd that Alan Grant wrote this. Um, we see Jean-Paul wandering off to find himself at the end of Legends of the Dark Knight 63, and he ends this story wandering off to find himself. So you could skip it, and it doesn't mean anything. On the one hand, it's a reasonably nice little tale about what it's like to be homeless and how most of these people were good, upstanding members of the community until bad luck hit. That does remind us all that we're all only one missed paycheck away from being kicked out onto the streets by a society that values vacuous celebrities above all else. But on the other, it's a very bleak story after the optimism of Legends of the Dark Knight and the Robin issue. Be interesting to see if they include this in the trade. Mm. I wouldn't be writing a sternly worded letter if this wasn't in it to be honest with you. Um, do you have anything else to say about this one? No, I thought it was quite dull. Yeah. It was... It's just two people, well, one person talking at a silent person for yeah. 20 pages. See, the thing with the Catwoman issue, if they'd have told that Catwoman story concurrently what was going with what was going on with Detective and Legends instead of its own book, mm. it wouldn't have felt like an add-on because it would be explaining the, the neural enabler and the Selkirk stuff. As it was in its own book, it felt like a bit of an unnecessary add-on, but at least it was part of the story in some way. Yeah. The Robin Aftermath chapter is very definitely a part of Night's End, and as Michael correctly points out, should be labelled Night's End Epilogue. This is just redundant. You don't need it at all, do you? Night's End, give me your money. Yeah, it's, it, it is very much that they've slapped this in an issue of Showcase to make Showcase sell. And that's it. At least they had a better artist this time round. Yeah. Yeah, well, still, you know, not good. Finally, ending as we began. It's the circle of life. Oh, I promise your mum I wouldn't sing this way, didn't I? Mm. Oh, I buggered that one up. Uh, Marvel and DC published another... No, she's not like she listens. Mm. Marvel and DC published another Punisher Batman team-up released just after Night's End was completed. This time it was by Chuck Dixon, John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen and entitled Deadly Nights. Uh, I think Christy Shield coloured it. Uh, I think this may be the only time John Jr. has drawn Batman, at least officially. Yeah. Has he? I don't think he's ever done it again, has he? 
Nope. Uh, the cover has Batman and the Punisher grappling in the rain whilst the Joker looks on with a gun and another man, his head all bandaged and watches in the background. The Invisible Man. Yes, he's the Invisible Man. Oh, the... I'm the Invisible Man. Bodiless floating head man. Because <laughs> yeah, it does look like he's not got a body though. Yeah. I got no body. It's not really a chapter in the Night's End storyline and it probably won't be in the trade paperback. But it is a sequel to the Jean-Paul Punisher team-up covered in the first show about Night's End, so we thought we'd give it a mention. Again, probably not going to give it full courage. The story, the Punishers return to Gotham where Jigsaw's still hiding out after their last encounter, and within minutes of arriving, he's involved in gunplay with Jigsaw's men. Needless to say, this amount of gunfire has attracted Gotham's finest and the Batman. Punisher wipes everyone out and picks one guy for interrogation. When he can't tell him where Jigsaw is, the Punisher's about to put a few bullets in his face, but Batman arrives and interferes, causing Punisher's patsy to hightail it to Jigsaw. Still working with the Joker, Jigsaw has undergone surgery to fix his face, whilst the Joker helps him take over the mobs. The Punisher tracks down Jigsaw, and Batman tracks down the Punisher, and both get involved in a turf war between the Jigsaw, Joker, and Navarone for control of tough Tony Bressy's territory. The Punisher destroys Jigsaw's facial reconstruction with a well-placed hand grenade, and Batman stops Jigsaw before stopping the Punisher from murdering the Joker. There's too many thes in this. Batman tells him to get out of Gotham and not come back. This, this, uh, this was a much better team-up than the first one, wasn't it? Yeah. No disrespect to anyone who worked on the previous Punisher-Batman team-up, but when there's an intercompany crossover, I want to see the classic characters meet rather than the subs bench. Peter David said when he did the Spider-Man Spider-Man 2099 meet-up, he was given the choice between using Ben Reilly and Peter Parker, and he chose Peter because he felt the audience wanted to meet wanted a meet between Peter and Miguel O'Hara. It's the same here. I want to see the proper Batman meet the Punisher, not the pretender. Having Chuck Dixon works exceptionally well, as he has experience of writing both characters, and there are some of the problems of intercompany crossovers present in the book. Neither company wants their character to look like a dope, so the protagonists respect each other almost to the point of being far too nice, and both are being evenly matched. We know we're not going to get anything earth-shaking, events-wise, in an intercompany crossover, because only Warren Ellis is mad enough to do something like that, but give us a cool tale with stuff we've always wanted to see, like Clark Kent working for J. Jonah Jameson and Superman fighting the Hulk, and I'm happy. And it's, it's fine, isn't it? Yeah. It's perfectly serviceable. What did Warren Ellis do? Warren Ellis did a planetary aliens... Was it planetary aliens? Or Stormwatch aliens? And he killed off most of Stormwatch okay. in an aliens crossover. Fair enough. Which, you're like, you don't do that kind of thing in a crossover. Because you're placing it with planetary anyway. Yeah, that's true. So I suppose authority. He, I suppose he wasn't yeah. that bothered. What was it? Stormwatch and then Authority. So it's probably Stormwatch aliens then. All of them crossover. Because they mentioned uh, Authority and Planetary. Yeah, yeah. Um, I enjoyed this. And I especially liked the Matches Malone appearance. Although once I put all my problems with the continuity and crossover logic and minor, minor nitpicks of the art aside, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, we get scratchy Ramita Jr. here, don't we? Mm. Um, and he's inked by Klaus Janssen. So that'll be why. Which probably adds to the scratch. Yeah. We don't dislike Klaus Janssen. But... We're not the biggest fans in the own. world. Yeah. Which is a shame, because under Klaus Janssen's inks, John Romita Jr.'s issues of Spider-Man are some of the best that he did. Yeah. It's very strange. That. I mean, the art in this is not by any means bad. Um, John Romita Jr. is brilliant. And he draws his characters larger than life. 
and he does fantastic gunfights. Um, but there's, you know, just generally there's a lot to like here. It follows the template set down by the Superman-Spider-Man team-ups in that they don't bother with any alternate dimension mumbo-jumbo like you mentioned. They just um, get on with it. Yeah, they just get on with it. Batman knows who the Punisher is, vice versa, they just haven't met before. Dixon throws in a couple of genuinely funny scenes. Mr. Navarone beating up an informant then later tells him to call his mother because she nags him. <laughs> Which I thought was a standout, but notable mentions to the joke of burying someone up to the neck in sand before the tide comes in, and a reappearance from Matches Malone, as Michael mentioned. I love Matches Malone, mm. I think he's great. And the dialogue sparkles with wise guy wit in certain places. We get a lovely Joker Punisher confrontation where the Joker points out that both he and the Punisher are killers, and Batman stops the Punisher from killing him. Which is where I have a little bit of a beef. I don't believe for a second. Batman would let the Punisher go, especially given that the final confrontation, Batman clearly has the upper hand. Well, he let Jean Paul go. Yeah, but the Punisher is a mass murderer. Yes, he only murders bad guys. Yeah. But, but by doing that, he's no better than that. Yeah, but and certainly Batman wouldn't stand for that. Mm. So, a better ending, I think, would have been the Punisher is sent to prison by Batman but escapes on the way and flees back to New York at the end of the story. I'd have bought that, because that way Batman has done his job, he's apprehended him, mm. but the Punisher gets away. I could have lived with that quite easily. It's a minor quibble. For the most part, it's a fun little book. I like that it's dedicated to Ross Andrew at the back. <laughs> Ross Andrew was a very good comic boot artist in the 60s, 70s, uh, and a bit of the 80s, I think. He had a long run on Spider-Man and um, the Metal Men, and he drew the first Superman Spider-Man team up. Oh. So he drew the first intercompany. Well, the second intercompany crossover, really. Marvel and DC had teamed up once before that. What was that? To do a Wizard of Oz comic book adaptation. Sounds. That's true. <laughs> that was the first intercompany crossover. And it was Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it was the so Wizard it was the of Oz. title Neither of the Mound. Yeah, so I, I don't know how that came about. But that was the first intercompany crossover. Um... And that's it, really. In terms of repercussions, Nightfall as a storyline doesn't, doesn't seem to be as influential or as fondly remembered today mm. as either the Clone Saga, which I grant you is remembered for all the wrong reasons, mainly, or the death of Superman, which is remembered for the right reasons. Many of the characters and loose ends were picked up later. Azrael had a 100-issue series, all written by Denny O'Neill. And spoilers, he's still here. Okay, John Paul died in the last issue. Um, well, you can come back now. He's in Blackest Night. Yes, but he's there's a dead person in Blackest Night, isn't he? Mm. So he there you go. So we already ruined that. Yes, technically we did, didn't we? Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, Bane was robbed of whatever made him unique after Nightfall, and like Doomsday before him, should have been left alone after the initial story, as it diluted him, and he just became another bat villain. Uh, the story seems generally neglected, which is a shame, because for the most part I feel it holds up quite well as both a rollicking good read and as a story with something to say. Whilst its roots are embedded deeply in the 90s and the argument of whether or not Batman should be more violent to reflect the times, the story's themes of redemption, nature versus nurture, family, honour and the nature of heroism are still good themes worth exploring. While some of Knight's Quest is expendable, I really enjoyed reading all this again. For those that feel the need, 
DC Comics recently started releasing The Complete Nightfall, a series of three trade paperbacks that will cover all of the storyline, including chapters not included in the previous trade paperback releases. Nightfall will apparently provide the basis also of the upcoming movie The Dark Knight Rises, including appearances by Bane and Catwoman. Not too sure what I think about how Bane looks yet. Yeah, I'm still not. Reserve judgment until we see the film. What did what did you think about it as a whole, Michael? As a whole, it was fine. But when you look at single issues here and there... Yeah, well, that's why we covered it as a big story, mm. which is what it is. It's written in chunks, because that's how comics were marketed back then. It's not written with the trade paperback in mind. Yeah. But I, I think it holds up pretty well. It was a good read. Yeah. Unless you're reading all of Night's Quest. Some of Night's Quest drags... I don't think it sucks. It does not suck. But it's not always great. It's not always great, but it's a fun... I think it's a fun example of 90s comics. For a decade that gets largely dismissed... Yeah. Um, I think Nightfall, Night's End, Night's Quest, but not in that order, holds up. And it was great, if not only for the reason that they didn't turn Batman into Blood Bat. <laughs> yeah, Blood Bat. <laughs> Uh, they almost did. Did they? Yeah. Azrael was nothing if not blood bat. Um, we covered the Nightfall and Night's Quest portions of the novel by Denny and Neil in previous instalments. And as with those chapters, he completely restructures the entire Night's End arc, again telling it completely from Bruce's point of view, which is fair enough. He learns of Jean-Paul's act second-hand from Robin, and Bruce then follows it up with detective work. His training at the hands of the Lady Shiva, despite taking a few weeks timeline-wise, is cut down to a couple of pages in the novel. If I have a complaint, it's that there isn't a lot done with Jean-Paul, but quite correctly, O'Neill makes the entire book about Bruce Wayne, the character that the non-comics audience, whom I'm assuming the book will be aimed at, would be more familiar. There's none of the Nightwing Tim Drake material. In fact, there's no Nightwing at all. Dick Grayson being reduced to a one-mentioned character and Bruce starts investigating Jean-Paul himself with a little bit of help from Tim. Jean-Paul's loopy in both versions, but essentially O'Neill does a really good job of stripping the story down to its basics and completely reformatting it to fit a novel. Not surprisingly, the part of Night's End that is best represented in the book is Legends of the Dark Knight 63, written by Denny O'Neill himself. Bruce's fury and Jean-Paul's destructions of his father's portrait are a lot more visceral in the book, with Bruce having to calm himself down inwardly before continuing, although outwardly he doesn't betray his emotion to Jean-Paul. After descending into the cave, Bruce doesn't change into Batman, which makes sense as the author doesn't have to resort to such silly nomenclatures as Batman Classic and Batman Zero, like what I had to do. And Bruce deliberately deceives the slightly mad Jean-Paul into believing he's communicating with Dumas, although Jean-Paul doesn't fall for it in the novel. Bruce justifies his decision to let Jean-Paul go by quoting reasonable doubt in the case of the death of Abattoir, as he wasn't there to see it and therefore doesn't know the full facts. The epilogue of the novel takes the end of Night's Quest The Search and tags it on at the end, with Bruce and Tim visiting Chandra and tying up all the loose ends that would be explored in the comics in the coming months. Bane is mentioned as being not expected to recover from the damage his nervous system took due to the venom drug he was taking, and Alfred is mentioned as having left to find his own path and maybe he'll return when he wants to. Jean-Paul is established as being in Amsterdam, and the novel ends without establishing if Bruce even wants to be Batman anymore. A very downbeat and melancholic ending which fits it's the standalone story the novel is telling, but doesn't work for serialised fiction. Again, if you're really interested in the story and you can't be bothered with the three trade paperbacks, which I think at 25 quid a pop are quite expensive, try and pick up the novel. 
because it's a lot cheaper on eBay and you do get the broad strokes of the storyline. The audio adaptation by Dirt Mags for the BBC, most of the key beats from the comics are in place, but the total running time for all of Night's End is about 35 minutes. It arguably is a much more faithful adaptation than the novel, however an awful lot of the issues are boiled down to one and two minute segments. Mags addresses the issue of the Batmobile appearing from nowhere at the most propitious moment by having Jean-Paul essentially do what I took, the mick out of doing, by having him leave it on the bridge. That's true. Okay. In the audio adaptation, Jean-Paul parks on the bridge and then just goes over to the penthouse later. Okay. I mean, at least he addressed it. Um, it's the ending that lets the audio adaptation down. The final scene after Jean-Paul leaves is what Seth MacFarlane, creator of Family Guy, refers to as the moment. I'll bleep that. Whereby a convenient, rushed and sometimes sentimental sequence happens merely to return everything to the status quo for next time. We get a Gordon Batman makeup scene Alfred appears from nowhere, Nightwing and Robin are eating eggs upstairs, and Alfred offers to clean the bat costume so Bruce can go out tonight as if nothing has happened. Yes. Where did Alfred go? Um, Alfred buggers off, and there's a one-issue Nightwing story. I can't remember if it was an annual or just a special, where Nightwing goes off to find him and brings him home. Okay. And then, and then everything's back to normal. Then. Um it's a shame that the Ardu adaptation ends like that because in every other respect it's a pretty decent adaptation of the comics mm. well, at least Nightwing was in it which is something you can't say about the novel and that is it we have covered all of Batman the Knights trilogy Prodigal next yes I think so we do want to do Prodigal not next not next week we do want to do Prodigal. That's, I think that's our next big Batman project. Um, and maybe we'll tag Troika onto that. I can't, I can't. Have we decided if we were doing that or not? We can do it as one show. It's four issues. Yeah. Are, are we going to mention the Zero Hour stuff as well? If you want. I suppose we could do, because Zero Hour is pretty cool. We could well, do that with Zero Month comes out. Yeah, we could. Um, we could... Um, yeah, we'll ponder exactly how we're going to do that. We definitely want to do Batman Hush. Mm-hmm. So we haven't talked about Batman Let's just change our podcast to Hey Kids, Batman, Batman Podcast. Yeah. He is the character we've covered the most yeah. in through the entire run. But next week we have a special treat. Well, we think it's a special treat, don't we? Next week, and I've already got it here, because we've already started looking at it, we are covering DC, the New Frontier Absolute Edition by Darwin Cook and Dave Stewart. This is thanks to Matthew Balzano, who suggested that we cover this and the animated movie of it. We'd already had New Frontier on the list, mm-hmm. didn't we? But we thought, oh, that's a good idea. And we've started making the notes on that. Even I have. Even I'm, Michael. I'm, I'm Michael's a week ahead, uh, a week ahead um, which is quite unusual for Michael. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be the next two or three weeks. We've not decided how we're going to split that yet, have we? And what we're going to do about the animated movie whether to do a commentary or whether to just talk about the movie um, you'll know when we do well we'll know two weeks before you do obviously because yeah. we record two weeks in advance uh, we hope you enjoyed the night fall night's end night's quest stuff again night stuff not in that the night stuff not in that order no. uh, you know where to find us we're on Facebook we're on email we have a forum it's all mentioned in the tag at the end. You can get in touch with it if you wish. I just want to thank everybody who listens. This month has been the single best month for downloads and embedded listens we have ever had. Has it? Yep. 
we maxed out our we, bandwidth. We don't know what that means, but it must be good. We don't. We don't know what that means because if people don't get in touch with us, we don't know where you are. But we, if someone emails us now and says, "Dude, that's that's crap," that means no one's been listening to you. Yes. Yeah, it could be. I don't. I don't know what a good figure is. I've not got a clue. I don't know what's considered good. Fair enough. So, so anyway, consider it all to be good. Yeah, it's all good. If somebody's listening to this drivel yeah. and enjoying it, then, then I'm happy with that. If there's one person sat in a room on his headphones <laughs> listening to us going, hey, that Michael guy's quite funny. That Andrew's a dick, though. <laughs> um, I doubt it. You never know. Um, so thank you very much for listening. If you're new, welcome. I suspect that that Spider-Man bloke may be a bit popular. That may have had something to do with it. What Spider-Man bloke? Yeah. But we've just spent five weeks talking about Spider-Man and then three weeks talking about Batman. Oh, right, you mean Spider-Man? Yeah. Not an actual Spider-Man bloke? Not an actual Spider-Man bloke, no. It could have confused a stupid person. It could have confused a stupid person, yes. And did. And yeah. Um, so we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Take care, everybody. Bye. I was wondering <laughs> if you were going to say bye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks, all one word, .com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. Music this week was by Chris Holland, and uh, all of his music can be found on www.chrishollandmusic.net, and we thank him for allowing us to use his tracks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>